for you to take a seat. We're going to say goodbye to the kids at this point. Have fun with Pastor Zach. I'm sensing that the Lord is uh, saying that the, if you are in danger of becoming disenfranchised with your faith, um, that God loves you deeply and he's holding his hand out to you and invites you to grip it and not to let go. He won't let go because only through him is the words of eternal life. You won't find them anywhere else. So I encourage you to respond to the word of the Lord, if that's you today. Thank you, team, so much. Uh, welcome, everyone. Um, if you're new and visiting today, uh, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a delight to get to open the scriptures uh, this morning, which we're going to do in just, in just a moment. Uh, so welcome here. Hello to our online uh, community and uh, we're glad that you're joining us also. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been diving into the beginning uh, of the letter to the Colossians. That is the letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church that was in the city of, of Colossae. And uh, if you know anything about the New Testament, you will know that the New Testament begins with four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's how the New Testament uh, begins. And a Gospel is a story or collection of stories uh, about Jesus. Uh, we learn about his birth and his life. We learn about his teachings and miracles. We learn about his arrest and his trial and his death and his resurrection, the gospel stories, the good news. And there's four of them. So they're, they're written by, by different people who are close in to Jesus and the early Christian movement. Each one has slightly different emphases, but their messages about Jesus inspired by the Holy Spirit. And after you get through the first four books of the New Testament, you get to the book of Acts, which answers the question, so what happened next? After Jesus ascended to the right-hand side of the Father, what happened next? What happened to the apostles? How did the church begin? How did they survive in such a hostile environment of first century Rome? What happened? And so we follow then through the book of Acts, the spread of the gospel out from the city of Jerusalem into the, the wider province of Judea, into the next province of Samaria, and then beyond to the ends of the earth all the way to Rome. The book of Acts. And what it is, church family, is it's a spreading flame. What I mean by that is that the Holy Spirit actually gets poured out on the church at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 at the very beginning. And how does the Spirit come? By tongues of fire. That's right, flame. The Spirit gets poured out as a flame, and the flame then spreads. That's what it's about. And so uh, in your Bible, it's probably called the Acts of the Apostles. I actually don't think it's the best name for it. I think the better name would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because yes, the, the apostles did stuff. And of course, the Holy Spirit did it through the apostles and the early church and the early believers and so on. But it was the Holy Spirit that was doing it. When Jesus went, he said, I'm going to send another one like me. You will know him. He'll have the family likeness. And that was the presence of Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit, equipping the church and creating outposts of the kingdom inaugurated by Jesus all over the known world. 
And of course, that's continued through history as the flame has spread further and further and further from the Middle East um, uh, over the whole world. The New Testament is all about new creation. It's not surprising that the Gospel of John begins very similarly to the, to the book of Genesis. In the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning. In the book of Genesis, it says, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, says John. In the beginning, when God created, says the book of Genesis, it's new creation, it's recreation, John purposefully connecting to those words. And that everybody who responds to the living Jesus becomes new creations themselves, so says Paul in 2 Corinthians. The old is gone, the new has come. Believe it, friends. I'm not even preaching, I'm preaching from Colossians, but this is exciting stuff. And so what happens after the book of Acts then in the New Testament is that much of the rest of it is actually correspondence. Not all of it, but, but, but a lot of it is. And what I mean by that is the lion's share of the rest of the New Testament are actually letters written, mostly by the Apostle Paul, but not all of them were. And they were written to individual churches. And um, they, were, they were written for various different occasions and purposes. Sometimes it was because there was some false teaching and Paul needed to address that. Other times it was because the church had written to Paul and said, hey, we don't understand this. What do we do about this? How do we deal with this situation like in Corinthians? And other times he writes to encourage them. So there's different occasions. And what happened was the Spirit was, was kind of raising up these occasions. And then the Spirit was inspiring Paul to write responses to them. And in doing so was actually authoring sacred scripture that became sacred texts, God-breathed texts, our New Testament part two of the Bible, part two to the Old Testament. So why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all of this because when we study a book like Colossians, what we're doing is we're studying God-breathed scripture that is for us and binding on us as the people of God, as the church today. And as well, we're, we're, we're studying a letter that was written into a very concrete situation in the city of Colossae in the first century. It's both and. And so uh, the first couple of weeks, Brian preached uh, week one, and um, Mike Evanson preached last week, and they did various uh, sort of introductions, and I'm going to do a little bit as well. Uh, coming up on the screen for you is a couple of, of maps. So you can see uh, the city of Colossae there. There's sort of a, um, a zoomed out map there on the left. To make sure it's the same. Your le left, my right, your left. Um, I know my rights and left. And, and that on the left there is modern-day Turkey. Uh, and so Colossae, if you can see it, is, is, is in there. And then if you look at the other map on the right, you see Colossae, uh, as we've zoomed in now, to the Lycus Valley. And so Colossae is sort of just down the valley, about 15 kilometers from Laodicea. And in Laodicea, there was another church. And it actually gets addressed at the beginning of the book of Revelation. So there was another gathering or an outpost of uh, the kingdom there. And um, the Lycus Valley is actually, I don't, I don't, it's the river you see in that picture, you can't actually see it, but, but there's this through fair, this, this east to west trading route all the way from the Euphrates River in Syria, north of Israel, all the way to Ephesus on the very edge of Turkey, which was the gateway to Europe. This was a major through fair. And so Colossae was a significant city built right there, would have had a lot of people uh, coming through. Now, Paul, who wrote the letter, 
never visited that church, or he didn't up until the point that he wrote it. He never visited there. Now, I think most of us assume that Paul surely planted, didn't Paul plant all the churches? No, he didn't. He planted some of them, but he didn't plant all of them. In fact, scholars believe that the person that planted the Colossae church was a guy called Epaphras. And so when um, Brian preached two weeks ago, that, that introductory passage, it says, I've heard about your faith, and it's so cool, and you're bearing fruit in the world, and all of that. He says, this you heard from my fellow believer, my fellow worker, Epaphras. And so people believe that Epaphras was the one that actually planted the Colossian uh, church. And so why is Paul writing to them? Well, probably for a number of reasons. But it seems that the main reason was that false teaching had broken out in the church. And that was actually pretty common in these early churches. And you might think, well, it always seems to be a problem. Why was false teaching always such a problem? Well, there's very good reasons why false teaching was such a problem, because this, this was a fledgling movement. This was a new movement called the way. And they didn't have doctrinal denominational statements to, to lean on. They didn't have theological treaties to lean on. They didn't have theological texts that they could go and get from the library and read. You know, this is what Christians have always believed because this was so brand new. Those big um, early, sort of in the early centuries, those big um, gatherings where, where they came up with the creeds, like the Apostle Creed and the Nicene Creed, those hadn't happened yet. For goodness sake, they didn't even have a New Testament. So for us, we can lean on a lot of things from the last 2,000 years. We have the scriptures and we have so much thinking and thought and theology and doctrinal statements and, and the gifts that scholars have given us and so on and so on. We can understand a lot more. For them, this was just a fledgling movement. A guy who was nailed to a Roman cross not that long ago, and now we're sort of this little movement trying to figure out what to do. So it was easy for false teaching to come and to lead them astray. And so that's one of the things that was going on uh, here. And so uh, we're going to talk about that, what that false teaching may have been a little bit more next week in the week after when we get to sections of Colossians that it seems like Paul is really dealing with those false teaching pieces. Um, but it's just good for us to know today that that's one of the things that he was doing. And sometimes when there's false teachers, Paul will hit its head on, like in the book of Galatians. And other times he won't. Sometimes he'll just teach truth. And in teaching truth, what he's doing is actually refuting non-truth. And that's kind of how he does it. And we'll see sort of uh, some of that. So uh, when Mike preached last Sunday, that wonderful, beautiful, early poetic part of the letter that talks about Jesus being, you know, uh, the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation and how he holds all things together and, and all the fullness of God dwells. I mean, it's just beautiful scripture. It is both wonderful teaching about Jesus that taught them positively about Jesus, and it very much refuted wrong thinking about Jesus. So that's some of what Paul was doing. As I said, we'll get to that later. But as Brian said, Paul is drawing the Colossians back to Christ as the center. And so Colossians is a beautiful Christocentric, Jesus-centered uh, text. So let's dive in. If you have your Bible with you, uh, open up to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to pick up at verse 24, and we're just going to just kind of uh, sneak into uh, chapter 2 today as well. We'll go to 2.5 uh, today. Uh, this is what it says. 
I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. What does that mean? And in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. What on earth does that mean? We're going to talk a lot about those things. I became its servant, verse 25, according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that's been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and I struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires uh, within me. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. There it is. He's never been there. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit. And I rejoice to see your morale and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Amen. God's word to us this morning. There was a uh, song that was released in 2010 by Bruno Mars called Grenade. And some of you in the room will, will know that song, and many of you in the room will probably not know that song. And that's okay. Uh, but in the song, uh, th- these are some of the song ly- lyrics. What you don't understand is I'd catch a grenade for you. I'd throw my hand on a blade for you. I'd jump in front of a train for you. You know I'd do anything for you. The song is a song about a breakup, a, a breakdown in relationship, and about unrequited love. We've broken up, but I still love you. You may not love me back, but I, I may not want to return my love, but I want you to know I would have done anything for you. I would have thrown myself in front of a train for you. Now the song goes on and he sort of comes round, but, but, uh, but this part of the song is, is all about that. Now, um, anyone who is a parent will understand the truth of that idea. I think most parents would say, I would do anything for my children. I'd jump in front of a train if it would save them, right? That kind of idea. I'd do anything to prevent the suffering of my children. I'd suffer in their place. And it's not only parents that feel that way. Like in the song, people feel that way, perhaps, you don't have to answer this, about your spouse. Um, maybe you don't. Uh, that's okay. Um, don't tell me. Uh, or somebody that you fall in love with. Maybe you feel that way towards your grandparents. Or about a very, very close friend, perhaps. Maybe you feel that about your parents or your siblings or, or whoever. We get that kind of idea of, I would do anything for you. 
We sometimes see it in the movies as well. The hero of the movie is holed up in some place with his or, or her friends, and, and, and you know the enemies are kind of coming, and they're, they're going to kind of attack, and all of a sudden, the hero says, why don't you guys run out back, run across the field, get to the cover of the trees, and what I'll do is I'll run out front, and I'll draw the enemy a fire away from you so you can escape. That kind of idea. What am I getting at, and why am I telling you these kind of uh, stories? I'm telling you this because I think this... There's something kind of like this in our passage, and I hinted at it when I read the passage. You see, a lot of scholars believe that Paul wrote this when he was in prison. It's called one of the prison epistles or the prison letters. So Paul's in in prison. He can't visit. He can't go and pastor them, but his heart is for them. He knows that they're being, you know, infiltrated by false teachers, and he's longing. So he writes. It's the only thing he can do. He writes to them, and he sends this letter off to encourage them. And perhaps the idea here is that Paul thinks, as long as I'm in prison, the fledgling churches can have a bit of freedom to grow in more safety. And that's maybe why at the beginning, in, in, again, in, in the very first passage, he was saying, I'm so overjoyed to hear about your faith and your fruitfulness and how you're growing and all these kind of things. Paul, you see, was the, the lightning rod of the early movement, the way. He was the traveling evangelist, the missionary. He was often opposed. In some towns, there were riots that broke out or people that came and and chased after him and he had to run out of town. He was imprisoned a number of times. He went all over the known world at the time. And he stirred things up and he would have been known to the Roman authorities who imprisoned him and he would have been definitely known by the Jewish authorities because he was a young, up-and-coming, prominent and promising young Pharisee. So they would have known who he was. So it may have been that once Paul was in prison, the authorities said, ah, phew, we've stamped out that stupid thing called the way. We've got their leader, They, they won't survive now. And they took their attention away. It may have been that Paul thought, as long as I'm in prison, I can kind of draw enemy of fire away from the young churches, and they can thrive and grow while I suffer here in prison for them. Well, I'm going to rejoice in that, because if that's what it means, then I'm for that, even if it means my own suffering. So that may have been what Paul meant when he said, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. If he didn't mean that, then we've got a bit more of a trickier thing going on here because the opening part of the passage leaves us with two questions. Question number one, how on earth can Paul's sufferings be for the Colossians? That's why I said what I said. I think that's probably the best, most plausible way to understand that. But then Paul goes a step further. And he says, not only only does he say he's suffering for them, but he says that his sufferings complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. So that leads us to an even harder question number two, which is how on earth can Paul connect his sufferings to the afflictions of Christ? How can he do that? And to go on and say that somehow he was making up for what Christ lacked. And so it raises a connected question, was Christ's suffering somehow insufficient? If we were to wrestle with that question, I think most of us in the room would say, well, of course not. Of course it wasn't. Of course his suffering wasn't insufficient. We'd, we'd, say, uh, we'd say, no, no, Jesus' once for all sacrifice was, was good for everything. 
Nobody needed to make up anything. So, okay, if that's our answer, and by the way, I think that is our answer, and I think that's a good answer, but it leaves us with the question, what on earth did he mean then? Well, let me tell you, it doesn't actually have anything to do with the suffering that led to our salvation. It's not related to his death. It's not related to the shedding of his blood for redemption. It is not related to the cross. That was once for all. The once for all sacrifice for the redemption of the world, and it is finished. There is nothing lacking in Christ's sacrificial death, and nothing needs to be made up by anyone, including Paul. So what does it mean then? Well, it's actually talking about afflictions, not sacrificial suffering. Afflictions, the Greek word thlipsis, is never used, never used in the New Testament to talk about the cross. It actually means more like distress or trouble or pressure. Uh, Thlipsis has a good picture of this kind of pressure coming down on, on you. So it's more about the trials of life than it is the pains of death. And so the idea is this. Christ continues to experience this kind of affliction, trouble, distress, pressure, when the church is afflicted. You see, church is described as the body of Christ, and when the body of Christ suffers, Christ himself suffers. How do we know this? Well, we know this because when the risen Christ in the book of Acts approached the apostle Paul, who was Saul at the time on the road to Damascus, what did he say? Did he say, why do you persecute the church? Mm -mm. Did he say, why do you persecute Christians? Uh -uh. Did he say, why do you persecute my friends? Mm -mm. He said, why do you persecute me? Jesus understood that when the church was persecuted, he was persecuted. When the church was afflicted, he was afflicted. The idea then is after the once for all death and sacrificial suffering of Jesus had taken place, after the resurrection had taken place, persecution and affliction are still able to be felt by Jesus whenever his people experience and feel it. And that's what he was saying to Paul when he said, why do you persecute me? There's a union with Christ's peace here, a beautiful union with Jesus' peace. If we understand this idea that we are actually united with Christ, if we believe that we're invited to partake in the beautiful divine dance of the Trinity at the center of the universe, if we actually understand and believe that we're in Christ and Christ is in us, and we believe all of that stuff, not in some abstract theological proposition kind of a way, but actually believe it as a dynamic truth to be lived out. If we believe that, then it's not hard for us to jump to understanding that as we suffer in the world, as we face trouble and affliction and pressure and persecution and opposition and the general trials of life in health and relationships and so on and so on and so on, that we are somehow mystically sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. And someone might respond to that and say, oh, okay, I see. It's the gospel's small print. Right, right, right. I knew it was too good to be true. Just as Jesus, so Jesus died for our sin, sure, he took our place and suffered for us, okay, but then I didn't read the, sh the small print that says, yeah, but you need to still continue to suffer. Like, Christ can't take it all. I knew it was too good to be true. Of course he isn't. He's, he's, he's given some back so that we still have to suffer. Christ suffers, but we still suffer. If we saw it that way, well, that would be a tragic way to understand that and a wrong way to understand that. What if instead we saw it this way? 
And this is the way I want you to see it, and I encourage you to see it. What if instead we said it this way? Not only did Jesus die in my place to secure my salvation, as if that were not enough. Not only did he wipe away my sin and my shame and cast it as far as the east is from the west, if that was not enough. Not only did he suffer with me in mind, if that was not enough. But also as we suffer the trials of life now in the now not yet reality of the coming kingdom that we exist and live in and suffer because, hey, the world is broken and fallen and we're finite. Not only that, but Jesus continues then to identify with us and suffer along with us when we're persecuted. He is too. He shares in our sufferings. So yes, we share in his sufferings, but flip that around. He shares in ours, and it's how Hebrews is able to say we have a great high priest who is able to understand our sufferings and empathize with us. So what we're talking about today is not the small print side of the gospel. It's actually another level of the richness that ought to drive us to our knees in adoration of how good Jesus is. And it actually goes a long way to helping us understand why suffering? Why, why evil? Why this in the world, Jesus? Why do I have to face this? Why me? And he's like, why us? So when Paul says that he's completing what is lacking in Christ's affliction, he's not saying that there's something deficient about the sacrifice of Jesus. He's merely saying, or he's merely viewing rather, suffering from a different vantage point, that even after his sacrificial suffering and death, there are ongoing afflictions that are part of the fallen world and still happening, and Paul is happy to take his share because he understands that this is about mystical union with Christ, and Paul will take his share of the ongoing sufferings of Christ. They lack in the sense that they haven't all happened yet. That's what he means. There's still more to come. They continue to be present and they will continue to be present for as long as our broken world is the way it is. And they have to be worked through and they have to be suffered through until the final consummation of all things when Jesus comes back to wipe away every tear. And then there'll be no lacking in afflictions anymore. And if Paul has the added benefit of taking away afflictions from the early fledgling church by his own imprisonment and what he's suffering in prison, well, he'll happily take that. Because Paul is mature in his faith, and he'll even rejoice about it. Friends, this is not some martyr-like, you know, woe is me, self-flagellating kind of uh, idea here. Um, uh, absolutely not. And there's, uh, uh, this is just right understanding about suffering. Jesus said to us, take up your cross and follow me. He never said, go and create country clubs and take up your country club membership and follow me right? He said, take up your cross and follow me. Expect hardship and opposition and suffering. And everywhere I go, there's both opportunity and opposition. They both exist. In our gray world, and so there's nothing wrong with enjoying the peace and the blessings of life. There's nothing wrong 
With that, there's nothing to say that we should seek out suffering. Of course not. There's nothing to say that we should, uh, when we suffer, we shouldn't try to alleviate it in ourselves and others and seek support and God's healing, etc. Absolutely, that's all in breaking kingdom of uh, stuff, the blessings of the kingdom stuff. That's all good. All it's saying is that when inevitable suffering does come, what a different way to think about it. To understand that you're actually mystically taking up the sufferings of Christ. You're, you have this union uh, with him. And that he's with you and he understands and he empathizes. That's kingdom thinking. And Paul said, I know what it's like to have nothing. And I know what it's like to have plenty. And I've just learned to be content in all circumstances. I know what it's like to suffer. And I know what it's like to have some peace. And I'm content in both doesn't mean I'm necessarily happy when I suffer. Happiness and joy are two different things. We're not happy about our suffering. Often it causes us to to go into deep mourning and deep pain, absolutely. But there is a joy that God can give that can give you a peace that surpasses understanding that defies that. Paul then goes on. I'm just going to talk about this, this part briefly. He goes on to talk about the mystery It's been hidden through the ages and now has been revealed uh, to the saints. And I mentioned earlier that one of the reasons he's writing is because of the uh, false teaching, and that is is true. And um, one of the key elements of first century false teaching was an influx of mystery cults, as well as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was all about people gaining this special secret kind of knowledge that only the spiritual can get, this gnosis. Um, and, and, and that was certainly around, and, and as I said, we'll go into that in more detail, um, but uh, I think it's worth noting that I, Paul uses that word mystery, likely very purposefully, as a way of talking about the only mystery they need to understand. Don't pay attention to any of those mystery cults that try to garner your attention. This is the only mystery you need to know about, and it's twofold. The first one is this. The idea of the blessing to the nations that's been promised since the days of Abraham and has always included then the people outside of ethnic Israel. And though it has been written and written and written and talked about and so on throughout the Old Testament and repeated over and over, Israel always seemed to miss that point and would often turn inward to themselves. We're the, we're the chosen people of God. They're Gentile pagans. And we're just waiting for God to come and punish them. Israel often missed that idea. And part of the mystery is that God chose to make known his love and mercy among the Gentiles. The early church was made up of Jews and Gentiles, and they had to work some stuff through. Even Peter himself had to become convinced of that by a vision that God gave him in Acts chapter 10. Paul says in Galatians, there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Those old dividing lines, they don't exist anymore. We're all one in Christ Jesus, and they had to work on that, and we've had to work on that throughout history. So anytime the church of Jesus Christ has exalted one race or one ethnicity or one people group or one church denomination or one gender, usually male over female, to the exclusion of others, the church has shared in Israel's misunderstanding of the mystery of the ages and have been downright wrong. The second part of the mystery is this. It's revealed the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the name of our 
teaching series this summer, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the union of the believer and, and, and Christ, that Christ is in us and we're in him. And that is the truth that was preached to the early church, that God's presence no longer dwells just in a temple and actually hadn't for a long time, but actually dwells now in the temples of the Holy Spirit, the people of God. And that truth was preached to the early church and that same truth is true now. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit if you know Jesus and his spirit dwells in you whether you feel like he does or not. Christ lives us and we in him. So I just want to move really quickly just to a couple of points of application and then we're going to sing again uh, together. Um, Christianity is a lot of things. There's a lot of different ways you could describe it. But if we were to boil it down to its simplest point, it's Christianity is actually Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's about a lot more as well, but it's fundamentally about Jesus. If we put Jesus in the middle of our view of the world, if you put him right in the center, so everywhere you look in the world, you cannot, all you can do is see Jesus. You see the whole world through Jesus. If you learn to do that, to put Jesus in the very front of, um, of your eyes, you will start to see that the world begins to make a little bit more sense doesn't mean there won't be mystery. doesn't mean there's no ambiguity. It doesn't mean we'll understand everything. There will still be gray when we want black and white, absolutely. But as we yield to him and allow him into every corner of the caverns of our soul to invade every part, not just the little bits that you're comfortable with. You don't want him to go over here because he might discover something a bit gross. By the way, he already knows it's there. You can't hide it from him. But as we allow him into every single part of our inner being, we learn to awaken to him and we build our relationship with him and we learn to trust him and we trust him, we can let go of our anxiety about the world. Did you know that? You can actually let go. And we talked about that at the beginning of uh, the service today. You can actually let go of fear. And it's something that has to be continually worked out, but you can let go of that kind of fear because you trust him. And instead, you can take on his peace that surpasses understandings. And that, friends, is how we learn to view our sufferings and afflictions through the proper perspective of the kingdom. This part of the letter actually jolts us modern readers out of this idea that we only rejoice in our blessings and victories and health and wealth, but maturity enables us to actually rejoice in our afflictions as well because we know God is doing something more powerful and more deep. We know that we're sharing them with Christ. Perhaps we're even suffering like Paul so others don't have to, maybe. We're beginning to look at the world with kingdom eyes. We are, we are refusing to take on the anxiety and the anger and the distrust and the offense that's in the world around us. We learn to be content and peaceful in our circumstances. We preach to the world through our actions because they watch and they see. How can, you be, how can you be peaceful at the moment? How can you manage that difficulty? How can you do this? It's Jesus. We build our character. We're participating in the coming kingdom. Suffering is the enemy. There's no doubt about that. And one day we'll be a defeated enemy. But it's also a great teacher. I think it's probably many, 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 many people's experience that we grow most profoundly through trials and difficulties in our lives. 
That's what builds the character. That's what takes us deeper. And it's actually times when things are easy that we tend to grow a little bit cold and distant in our faith. That is a profound truth. Amen. Let's sing.